Welcome to Conversations with Dr. Jennifer, a collection of interviews on the topics of relationships, sexuality, spirituality, and more, all featuring Dr. Finlayson Fife. Okay, can you talk a little bit about your approach with therapy? I think it's it's a little bit unique and different, and I've heard you kind of explain it before in podcasts before, like what you see your role is, but will you articulate that a little bit like, What's your role when you're helping a couple or an individual person? Like, what is it that you're doing so that you can be a most help for them? Yeah. Well, it's kind of funny because I've done what I have intuitively felt was right, which isn't particularly conventional. And I have found a theory that explains what I was doing. <laughs> like you started doing it before you were. Yeah, well, that's not entirely fair because I was listening yeah. to people whose approach really resonated with me. Dr. Yeah. Schnarch is one of them. Terry Reel's approach is a more differentiation based, but I, it's not like it's uh, how to say it. It's not that I was looking for someone who teaches differentiation. It was I was looking for an approach that felt like it fit my experience of change. And I have since come across a theorist of adult development that also explains what I have observed myself. And so it's kind of cool to see that come together. But but what I think, um, I think a lot of approaches around therapy and change are about sympath- sympathy, empathy, compassion, um, letting people feel their feelings, giving people a sounding board, and um, understanding why people do the things they do. I mean, that's a lot of psychodynamic uh, Freudian-based theory is that if people kind of understand their defenses and why they are doing things, you know, it can explain adult behavior, all of which is true. I mean, you can say, yeah, I do this because this happened and that makes sense why I do it. But it doesn't necessarily lead to change. It just, you know, it's like, you know, after going to psychoanalysis for 20 years, three times a week, I know now why I'm a jerk. <laughs> okay. so it's kinda, that's, that's an approach that's sort of out there because um, it doesn't necessarily make somebody do differently. I think um, what has intuitively appealed to me and is a little more my approach is helping people to see what they in fact are doing and how, meaning we tell ourselves stories about what we're doing while we're doing other things and having a negative impact on our relationships and on our self, our sense of self. And it is a developmental reality because we um, psychologically start out entangled with everyone else. There is no other way to do it. And so our sense of self resides in our relationships, in other people, because we can't yet have psychological autonomy when we are a dependent child. And so in order for people to grow in their capacity for intimacy and love, they have to disentangle themselves psychologically. And what I mean by love is the ability to actually invest in another person, to care about another person who is separate from you, different from you, has a different history, doesn't validate you necessarily. Like that is the highest form of love, is that you love them because they are 
not because they make you feel good. When we're younger and psychologically entangled, right? We love in a lower form, which is more about, I love you because you love me, or I'm kind to you because I better, if I need you to be kind to me, um, or because I see you as an extension of me. And that's a more immature version of love and attachment. And so the question is for me, I don't do work of working with psychopathology. I, the work I care about is about development, helping people develop into more capacity for emotional and sexual intimacy, which requires that progression. And so, um, and so the progression is facilitated by moving out of psychological stasis with ourselves. You know, when you look, so the, the developmental theorist whose work I really love and kind of resonates with me is Robert Keegan's work because he's talking about, and Piaget talked about this as well, that the way that the brain develops, the mind develops is that you can have a certain amount of self-awareness and then the rest is just what you do, but you are not self-aware about it. You just do this way. You're in the world in a particular way. And as you grow, you grow into self-awareness around that way of being. And then you're just doing the world at a different level with more self-awareness in it. And the thing that facilitates that progression is going from an egocentric to an egodystonic state, moving from a place of stasis or comfort or everything is okay, I can kind of account for reality, to having reality that disrupts your sense of what's up and down, disrupts your sense of what is. And it's very uncomfortable. And what people can do when they're in that uncomfortable state is reject the new data reject the people delivering the message, right? Be cruel, be, you know, push it away and, and coddle your current stasis. Or you can use that information to tolerate what is, what you can feel is true, but you don't yet, haven't yet accommodated into your mind and into your reality and let that uncomfortable process grow your mind up to be able to accommodate more truth, accommodate more reality about yourself, about your relationships. And it's that discomfort for growth that we have to tolerate. And a lot of us don't tolerate it well. And we, we complain and resent and say something's going wrong rather than allowing our moral and psychological self to expand. So my work, as I see it, as imperfectly delivered as it may be, is to facilitate a higher view than what the person has of themselves and of their role in their relationship. And I don't mean that I understand all things, and especially about myself, because it's, it's much easier to see truth in others than it is to see it in ourselves. Because with ourselves, we are trying to maintain a kind of equilibrium of reality while shutting out information we may need. And when our relationship or our beliefs or our um, sense of who we are goes into some instability or crisis, 
it's um, we're often going and looking for a wise other to help us make sense of what's happening. And so, you know, people are often coming to me when they've run into a, too much reality for their mind or relationship to handle well, and they're looking for a way to make sense of it and to grow into a stronger, wiser, more accommodating space. Yeah. Well, and it's been really interesting with your Room for Two podcast. It's, uh, I mean, for one, it's a very comfortable therapist couch to sit in to mm -hmm. let other people deal with the, yes. the, the, the struggle anxiety. of it. Yes. But it's also been interesting to watch you as a therapist as you work with um, different couples and the different situations. And I mean, from my perspective, it just seems like the way you're working with them, you're just getting all this information on the table, sorting through it and trying to see what really is. Mm -hmm. yeah. And it's also interesting because it's not like, I mean, there's sometimes I'm like, Jennifer, you should just like dig into him, like get him and <laughs> like, let's take him down. And it's, it's never that. It's more like you, you seem to show up in this space where it's like not only seeing the situation more clearly, but understanding what's driving those behaviors, not to justify them, but to understand them. And, and exactly. Cause a lot of times when there is somebody that I might in my mind label as perpetrative, like they're yeah. doing indecent things, they're doing cruel things, they're exploiting their partner's anxiety, dependency for validation. And I think it's, it's, it's indecent, right? It's um, that how to say it, it's that that person is trying to find a kind of control in the world in a way that's ruining their relationships, keeping them from feeling good about themselves and keeping them from having any true meaningful relationship. I mean, so they're paying a big price for that behavior, um, as is their partner. And so it's just waking the system up. Now, maybe the one that wants the control doesn't want to wake up or has no interest because in some way it's working for them, but it's waking them up to how it's not working for them or what Christmas future might look like if they keep this going. Um, it's also sometimes it's waking the partner up who's paying the biggest price because if they can no longer accept it, because when you have an, a system in which one is being taken advantage of or uh, psychologically manipulated and the other's receiving that, um, it's the one receiving it is also in a kind of blindness to their partner, to themselves. That's why they keep receiving it. That's why they don't move into something better. And usually that person is the linchpin in the relationship, the one who takes the indecent behavior um, and imagines they deserve it or that they can change it or they can nice their way into a different relationship, a better relationship. So yes, it's my long way of saying it's like the more you can use truth to kind of wake that system up, the better chance that one or both is going to evolve. Yeah. Okay. Talk about differentiation. I mean, that's a word that comes up a lot, but how yeah. would you, I mean, maybe define yeah. what differentiation, differentiation exactly. is. Right. So probably the, the, the most succinct way 
to talk about it is that differentiation is, well, in short, psychological maturity. But what that means is uh, you, you have the ability to regulate your intellectual and emotional functioning while you're in meaningful, close relationship with others. So some people can regulate their emotional functioning when they are on an island and away from everybody <laughs> or a yoga mat or whatever, you know, that like yeah. they, they aren't mapping or managing the pressures that are a part of relationships. And so they can be at ease in their own skin. There's some people who can't manage their uh, sense of self unless they are, well, they say they aren't managing their sense of self. They're leaning on others. You know, they're possessive in relationships. They're controlling of other people. They need other people to make them feel okay by yielding to them or validating them. And so they may be close, but it's a kind of use that's in the relationship. And so they aren't able to regulate their functioning and be in connection. They're just being in connection to regulate their functioning. Both of those are the unhealthy version. And um, the healthy version is I can know you, know your thoughts, feelings, beliefs, history, the ways you're different than me, the way you the way you engage in the world differently than me. And I can still hold on to my sense of self and who I am and what I believe and what I feel and hold my dignity while holding your dignity. So just to give us a little more clarity, like when we are a, a baby, you know, researchers will say like a baby doesn't even know the difference between self and mother, right? It's all the same. It's just like that entity is an extension of that that ego self. And so when we start out, we are inherently egocentric because we have no other perspective yet from which to know reality. It really makes perfect sense. Like they have no, a baby has no ability to know him or herself as a self and a parent as a separate self. And so as the child starts to grow and grow in their capacity to know where they start and end and where, you know, there's a certain person that's separate than them. And then when they're about age four, they can understand better that this person has separate feelings, thoughts, and beliefs than I do. I mean, they can just understand it intellectually while still being dependent on that other person. But, you know, as you evolve, you grow from what Martin Buber called an I-it relationship. You're an extension of me. I need you. You know, our morality when we're in that sort of pre-age eight phase is I'm doing things, I'm obeying so that things go well for me. Not because I'm thinking about the impact that I have on you. Not because I'm thinking of you as a separate person from me in that more developed way. So we go from I, it, and if we develop, because many of us do not, we go and we really develop, which most of us do not, into a full differentiated person. We go to an I, thou relationship. Like I respect you and me. I see us as separate but I can love you, value you, care about you, see you in a, in a one way as separate. It's very kind of paradoxical, separate, but in another way, we're one. We're like all connected. We're all, we all matter equally, right? That even if you've walked a different path and lived a different experience, that I respect you as another human being, child of God, equal in, in value as I am. And so there is a, kind of oneness from immaturity that's just kind of egocentric psychologically 
to a capacity for a oneness that's more about communion and acknowledgement, love, and reciprocity. That is a version of how what it means to differentiate. So a lot of people misunderstand differentiation as just autonomy. Oh, if you're differentiated, you don't need anybody. You don't care what anybody thinks anymore. And that's not true. That's more defiant or, or de dependency avoidant. But what real differentiation is, is that I can know you, value you, care deeply about you, desire you, make love to you right? Know you and still know myself and hold on to the dignity of who I am and not just fold into your reality nor pressure you to fold into mine. And so as we develop our capacity for intimacy and love grows. I think there's a lot of these terms that you use. And I, I think maybe all the definitions overlap a little bit, but you, when you were describing differentiation, you use the, the term sense of self. Yes. And maybe can you just dive into that word a little bit? Like, what do you mean when you're referring to someone's sense of self? And what does that look like when someone has a strong sense of self? Yeah, that's a great question. So, so our, that sense of self, like how, how do I think about who I am and how do I manage the question of who I am? Um, you know, <laughs> I don't know why this story is coming into my head right now, but I remember when I was <laughs> on the school bus in first grade and I looked down and I noticed that back then, like, these like elastic waist pants that were polyester were, they were very in. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Give it a year. They'll be back. <laughs> and I realized that my polyester pants were on backwards. <laughs> and so my sense of self was like, I, I feel like ashamed. It wasn't just like, Oh, it's a little bit embarrassing. Like I felt kind of ashamed, like that I'd done the wrong thing. And then I knew when I got to my first grade classroom, I could probably just go into the bathroom and turn the pants around. But then I was worried that the teacher would think I was in there too long. And why was I in? If it took me a little longer, I have no idea that it would take any longer, but I just thought it might take longer. And then what will she think of me? And maybe I won't be a good girl, like in her mind. And I was very interested in being a good girl in my teacher's mind. And so you see, my sense of self is like, in you know, all the people around me on the bus and in the teacher and... And so my, I'm trying to manage how I'm seen to manage my own anxiety and my own feeling okay. So I got to my first grade classroom. I went up and I explained to her that I needed to change my, turn my, <laughs> she's like, okay, sure, whatever, you know, like, no, right. <laughs> uh, but then I knew it was like, you know, I'll be okay. So that, you know, nothing, nothing abnormal about that, maybe a yeah. little more sensitive than some kids would be. But, um, but you know, that's a sense of self that's highly entangled with her group and with authority figures. That's that my teacher was the one I was most concerned about. So, you know, as we grow, so again, as a child, your sense of self is really about how the world is reacting to you. When you grow into about age eight and on, if, if everything's going well, developmentally, your sense of self comes through oh, like living like your group lives, believing like your group believes, uh, wearing the clothes that your group thinks are legitimate clothing to wear, um, doing, believing like the group does, doing what the group says is good. We And this is nothing wrong with this. This is absolutely developmentally essential. 
you internalize the frame in which your group operates because you need it. You need it to regulate who you are in the world. But your sense of self resides in your relationships, right? So, um, you know, in the earlier stage when you're in first grade or, or younger, you're thinking more in terms of my sense of self is if, if authority figures are um, okay with me, if I'm safe with them, if they're going to protect me and keep me well. As you move into the social stage, this is Robert Keegan's work, then your sense of self resides through being okay in your group and being okay in your relationships. So you can care very much about people, not want to hurt them, but part it's still somewhat egocentric because you don't want to hurt them because you don't want your relationship to be impaired or for their validation to be lost. So there's still a sense of self that's walking around on other people. Now, most of us kind of stay in this stage. This is where most of the world stays, is I'm okay because you say I'm okay, because my group thinks I'm okay, because I fit in. And sometimes the gift of not fitting in is that it can pressure you. It doesn't mean you necessarily do this, but it can pressure you to start to sort out who am I actually? What do I actually think? What do I actually believe? And to start differentiating your psychological and moral and relational functioning from validation-based relationships. Now, there's nothing wrong with validation. People think I'm a validation hater. <laughs> I love validation. In fact, I love it too much sometimes. But you know, is <laughs> you know, good sexual and 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 intimate relationships have high levels of validation in them. So there's nothing wrong with validation. It's just if we betray what we actually believe is true, or who we really are, or what we value to get validation. Like, I'll be whatever you want, just love me. That is when we use validation to corrupt or interfere with our own sense of self evolving into more self-regulating capacity. So like when I was an adolescent, for example, I could feel that I saw things in my faith differently than people I loved and valued did. And this put me into some crisis. Like what is wrong with me was one big question. Like why are all these other people who seem prettier and smarter than me okay when I, I don't see it this way? And uh, so what was wrong with me was my first question that I sat with for a long time. Then it was like, what's wrong with them? <laughs> I went into some right. of that. <laughs> um, but, you know, if this was a process of sorting out the question of who am I, because it wasn't like everything was wrong. There was many things that were very good and that I valued and I knew had been very essential to my life, but things that I didn't value, I didn't see as the way that others I loved saw them. And so it was painful because my sense, I feared losing that validation, but it was a process of claiming a sense of self that was more disentangled from other people seeing it the same way and being more able to say, I can tolerate, right, that I see it differently. 
I can still, now I didn't always do this, especially in the beginning, I would still like maybe kind of say, well, I see it this way and kind of need to push down on the other person in my mind and see them as, you know, less thoughtful or less something as a way yeah. of trying to manage my own anxiety about that. But as I have gotten older, I've gotten more able to not do that, you know, to just stay open to where I'm wrong. And again, I'm not trying to say I've got this all worked out, but I can see it evolving. Stay open to where I might be wrong, to to other people's thoughts, um, but also not apologize for where I stand and know why I stand there and not need to be harsh towards someone who sees it differently right. or sees it the way I saw it um, because I don't need to do that anymore because I just feel more able to be at e peace with myself while still being open to what I might be missing. Can you talk about kind of this, this tension then that we, we have between wanting to belong to ourselves and also wanting to belong to others? Because that seems where it gets all... Mm-hmm complicated, I guess, where it yeah. Well, when you think about it, right, this is, this is a fundamental tension. Um, it's, I want what I want. Like I want to do the things that I value and have my home be the way that I'm comfortable and also share it with you, who is a different person who wants different things, different levels of cleanliness, different things around them, you know, is, I mean, this is sort of em emblematic of a home, but it's in fact very true. Like how do we, it really captures so much of like, how do we bring who we are as individuals and share a space? Because what really quickly happens when the honeymoon ends and couples move in together, they're like, wait a minute, why are you going to bed at nine 30? Like, you know, <laughs> I don't go to bed till midnight. What, you know, <laughs> what kind of crazy things went on in your family that you went to bed, you go to bed at nine 30, you know, <laughs> it's like, you know it, we're, we're like, I want to belong to you, but don't tell me what to do. I want to belong to you, but I want to live my life the way I've always lived it. And yeah. so we're immediately, and then a lot of us say, well, what's going wrong? Well, what's going wrong? I mean, you married somebody, that's what's going wrong. <laughs> that was your first mistake. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you know, it's like a man and a woman, you know, in a, in a heterosexual marriage, you think about like how much difference there is in, you know, oftentimes people are attracted to difference regardless of sex, right? So, but a lot of times people are bringing very different ideas about sex, romance, household functioning, and stepping in together and expecting this to go, you know, swimmingly. And it, Wait, that just doesn't happen. I mean, if you're going to, unless one just subjugates themselves fully to their partner to keep validation coming or keep a false peace, but it doesn't forge a marriage. And by marriage, it's like two souls in a way knitting their lives together in partnership. Well, partnership takes growth because if you're going to actually partner, it means what do I give up? And what do I hold on to? What do I say is really about being true to myself? And if I were to give it up, would undermine my soul versus this isn't really that important. And I love this person and they deserve a way to be comfortable and to feel that they are at home in this marriage. 
So where do I got to grow up and be better and make room for another person? And so the, the subscription podcast I do where I'm working with couples around intimacy issues, both sexual and relational, it's called room for two because it's, that's the ideal. How do I, how do we create a meaningful space for both of us? And the way we do it, it's not compromised per se. It's like, where do I grow up and make room for this person? You know, that I just know in my own life and in my own marriage, there's just things that like are inherent to who my husband is. It's why I was attracted to him. When I'm regressed or I want things in a certain way, then they, then they are problems in my mind, as opposed to look, this is who this soul is like, and am I going to love this person or not? Am I going to make room for who they are and really cherish and value who they are? Right. Um, am I asking for too much? Sometimes am I asking for too little? Like, am I not being true to something that I need to articulate and be clear about that I don't disappear? You know, I work with a lot of people that start erasing themselves in the marriage to keep the peace, but there is no real peace in the marriage because it's really brittle and they don't feel they're thriving there. So that's the tension. That's why David Schnarch would say something like, I can't remember exactly how he'd say it because I say it a little differently, but marriage is a growth generating machine or something like that. Because in that tension, there's a lot of pressure to to grow and expand your soul. Talk about ego dystonic, okay? (laughs) Talk about being out of equilibrium with ourselves. Um, That marriage will drive that if you're honest in it. No. Of course, we figure out lots of ways to not be honest and to get around, try to get around this at the detriment of the marriage. Um, very human to do it. So a lot of my work is helping people to see what their losing strategies are, what, what it is that they're doing to create an equilibrium that's false and is fragile and what they can do to create something more robust and honest and, and with a deep sense of freedom in it which is very much linked to sexual desire. Okay. So can you talk about the the value of conflict and how that can actually contribute to a a thriving marriage and, and maybe the difference of what, what that really looks like when conflict comes from our integrity versus driven by our ego. Good. So first of all, conflict, just to make a little distinction is different than contempt or, you know, contention, a word we hear a lot. It's, it's different than hostility-driven disagreement. It's more about that process of, of making room for two people is going to require conflict. Now, again, that doesn't, it's not the same thing of hostility, hatred, and cruelty. Conflict is like, hey, that's not working for me. Like, you leaving your stuff all over the floor is like, I can't, that's like, that's miserable. And then the other person might say, well, having to have the place be clean all the time, that's miserable. Like, I just wanted, this is always how I've done it, right? Well, that's just going to, that is conflict. Even if you're being really kind about it and honest, you're in a conflicted space of like, okay, how do we do this? How do we make this uh, work for the two of us where we value two different things? And so 
that's an uncomfortable process because the issue of self and connection to other is right on the line. Wait, I can't feel good about me unless you feel good about me. And so does that mean forevermore I have to constantly have the house clean, right? <laughs> I can't, I can't like just do things the way I like because you'll be mad at me. Or the other side of that, which is, look, I want to live my life. I don't want to just be placating you and managing your peculiar desires. So it puts us right into this, how do I belong to me and you? And that drives us into collaboration. So what is that going to look like? I love you and I value you. We both desire different things. How do we make that work? How can we be fair to ourselves and each other? Now, seldom is it that clean sounding, okay? <laughs> usually, usually, you know, we battle it out for a while and then we maybe start realizing, wait, I'm not going to change this other person. So how do I, you know, make room? How do I be kinder about this? And that sometimes takes a while, but that is, that is how we adapt. That is how we evolve. Um, when it's, especially when it's coming from our compassion, not our fear, it's coming from our fear or our desire for control, then it, it's a losing strategy. Even it, it keeps us stuck, even if it looks collaborative. Um, in some of your podcasts, you've mentioned how, how much you value the quality of other people who are willing to self-confront and take accountability. And I wonder if you can kind of discuss, like explain, like what does that mean when someone's self-confronting and taking accountability for their role in the relationship and how that impacts the quality of the relationship. Mm. So self-confront is a, it's a word that David should use a lot. It's just the willingness to look honestly at yourself and to hold yourself to the same standards that you would hold other people to, right? To not let yourself get away with things that you would not think good in other people. And the reason why I respect it so much is, well, first of all, it's, I think it just appeals to our morality, our inherent morality that, that we don't, that we're not hypocrites, right? That we expect of ourselves, we expect ourselves to live up to our own values, to the mm -hmm. values that we hold other people to. And the reason why I think it's particularly respect worthy is because it is, how does it, it means you're willing to put your ego on the line, your ego or how you feel about yourself or your desire to see yourself as a good person is secondary to being a better person, to doing what is actually right and or good or more fair. And so it means you're willing to walk into the invalidation, the discomfort, the exposure of acknowledging I was wrong. I, that was not cool of me. I am sorry. Right. And I'm, I will change and not to prove you're a good person to others so much as to live up to your values, to actually do what you know is decent and fair. And, and it, it will increase the respect of others if you do that. But it's not the driver of trying to make sure everybody sees you as good and or trusts you or whatever. Again, it's not about trying to secure validation when it's at its best, as it is about looking for a kind of honest self-validation 
and honest, um, holding yourself to um, a higher way. And so it, I guess what I respect in it is that this person is not going to demand that they see themselves or be seen as perfect, that they're willing to truly acknowledge what they couldn't see and do something about it. It's a, it's an act of love. I care about my impact on you more than I care about how I feel about myself. I care about doing right by you, you know, and waking up to my blind spots more than holding on to my pet self perceptions. And, and so it, and I think it's experienced as deeply loving because you think this person actually cares about me and they're willing to um, make a change and evolve or address something just because they love me, because I matter to them and their impact on me matters to them. And that that's the stuff that really drives happiness and appreciation into a marriage. Yeah, and I think it creates so much freedom in a relationship. I mean, like maybe it's the only way to really be free in a relationship where you have two people who have limitations and immaturities. Yes, exactly. Because you're using the relationship in a sense and the information in it to refine who you are as a human being and to become a better person, a more loving person, a person you feel good about. And you're much more likely to have a partner who feels good about you or children who feel good about you or others that feel good about you because they see you as being fair or being willing to address where you've been wrong. And, and so it's, um, it creates, you're not beholden to everybody's validation like you were when you were younger. You are driving a deeper self-validation as your reference point. But it's not what sometimes people think I mean, like I'm going to do it because I just care what I think. It's, it's not that immature version. It's that you're really living honestly and being true to the best in yourself um, that's where you really build a kind of inner self-confidence and peace with yourself that you don't need other people to tell you you're okay. It always feels good when people appreciate you and so on, but you don't need that input to sustain your own sense of who you are. Okay. What do you mean when you're talking about, um, self-regulation and holding on to yourself? Like, what does that look like? Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think, you know, again, these are phrases that come from David Schnarch's work. Um, And I think what that means is um, you're working to develop that internal reference and internal calm rather than rushing to find it in relationships in the way that perhaps has been familiar. So, for example, you might be somebody who will placate your spouse, um, not bring up issues. Uh, if you do bring up something and they get upset, you rush to take it off the table and pretend that it's not a big deal and that you're sorry. Right. And that's a kind of anxiety driven co-regulation that I'm going to like do what makes you happy with me so I can be comfortable. So what, 
would it would mean if you were to try to self-regulate or hold on to yourself would be to say, look, I can see that I keep um, taking conflict away in an effort to be an older version of being a good person, but it's actually interfering with my happiness and the stability of the marriage. So I'm going to instead hold on to my own sense of what is true and what is really happening and self-regulate when my anxiety will go up because I'm breaking out of a pattern that is familiar but has undermined me. And I'm going to hold on to myself and calm down when I know my husband's getting upset because I'm breaking out of the pattern of just, um, you know, being a peacemaker and taking everything off the table. <laughs> so then it might look like, okay, I'm going to say things that I have felt for a long time, but, and I know matter, but I've been afraid to say, and I'm going to hold on to myself by calming down and knowing that I'm speaking truthfully, even if imperfectly, and I'm going to just reference my own reality and stay honest while trying to calm my anxiety about breaking the rules of the relationship up to date, up to this point. Yeah. So that's a version of you're calming yourself. You're keeping your reference to what is true, not what necessarily feels good. And you're staying engaged. That's a, that's literally differentiation in practice. I think, I think all these terms kind of, again, I think they play off each other, explain each other a little bit, but another phrase that I hear, especially in your room for two is you use the, uh, the term emotional enmeshment. Yeah. Kind of describe what you mean when you're referring to, to emotional enmeshment. Yeah. So just going back to the idea of psychologically, we start out fused or entangled, like a baby doesn't know the difference between mom and self. They're all sort of the same. Um, but when we, when our, when we limit our growth, we stay kind of psychologically fused on some level with the people around us. So emotional enmeshment is like my functioning and your functioning cooperate together. Now, not in a good way. Yeah. If mom gets anxious, I get anxious or, yeah. You know, if my husband gets upset, I get anxious and distressed. And Murray Bowen talked about the fact that anxiety is infectious in relationship, that if a spouse or an important other gets anxious, our anxiety will also go up. And even if we're doing two different things, let's say going back to the earlier example, one gets upset and angry and the other gets placating and peacemaking, that's still a enmeshed system. Because the angry one is getting angry as a way to get control and to get control of the other person. And the one is placating and accommodating um, also as a way of trying to get control, to get the other one to not be upset, to get the other person's validation. It's a, it's a balanced system and mm -hmm. one that keeps going, but it depends on the other person to, um, to manage one's sense of self. So it's by definition psychologically enmeshed. And um, you know, the maturity of a system has to do with how enmeshed it is. Can people have their own thoughts and feelings? Can people have their own emotions without infecting the whole family, right? 
Um, so, so, you know, how much is there room to be true to yourself in a particular system says a lot about how mature it is. Again, I, I think it was about 2015 when I first came across some of your podcasts and then your workshops. And I personally can speak to the the value of what your work has and how it's impacted my life. And it's, and I think it's pretty apparent that it's impacted many people in a very positive way. Um, I, this may not be a fair question because you didn't give you any heads up about it, but I think it'd be interesting to hear how your work has impacted you over the last decade. Yeah, that's a good question. Let me think about that a minute. I mean, it's, it's been an absolute remarkable privilege that I, if I think about it, sometimes I'm just kind of in shock. I've sometimes been at workshops and seeing people coming in and I'm just like, how did I get here? What, what am I doing? <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, it's just, it's been a real privilege. I, I have to say, I mean, I think these principles and ideas, I'm an articulator of these ideas, but of course I think these ideas pre-exist any of us and um, yeah. they've been very helpful in my life. I mean, one of the great privileges of being someone who's a teacher is it's a constant reminder to me to live up to these ideas <laughs> and <laughs> bring my better self and to have courage and to self-confront and to be fair. And, and, you know, of course I'm human, um, like, like all of us here are and, um, and fail at that process. But it's, it's blessed my life too. I mean, just these ideas have, they've made my life richer and better. And so, um, I'm grateful to be able to have an impact, uh, to play a role in people finding their strength and finding and creating better relationships. And many of these people I've never met, but I'm grateful to have, to be able to articulate some of these truths, um, in a way that helps people be able to apply them in their own lives. Thank you so much for listening. If you enjoyed today's episode, we ask that you please rate, review, and share the podcast so that more people can find and benefit from Dr. Jennifer's work.